Niall, I think we should open with an Easter pun. Exactly. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. This is episode 964. Today, we're asking, should big companies allow their networks to be run by AI? As we chat with Jan Vandelaar from Juniper. Also on the show, controversy over Twitter ticks and in tech toys, a potential killer for the Kindle scribe which, of course, is the killer of The Remarkable 2. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. I'm joined as ever by our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, Twitter, you love it. (laughs) You love it. There's rows blowing up left, right and centre. I think, firstly, there's the blue tick. When is it a blue tick? When is it not a blue tick? Well, when it's a gold tick. Uh, No, uh, I mean, let's let's look at this. I mean, the Twitter drama of the last year or so has just been, it's been pure popcorn. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, we all used to like Twitter or at least, you know, hate used it. Now it's just a perennial car crash. Like the more we find out about it, the worse it gets. Now, the latest uh, incident, accident, controversy, uh, related to Twitter comes to comes back to the blue tick because you remember one of the big changes Elon Musk made was that he said, right, if you want a blue tick, you're going to have to pay for it. Now, blue ticks are meant to be sort of verified identities. So, you know, if you're tweeting with a certain company, yeah, you're actually the person from the company. If you're a journalist, yes, you're actually the journalist. And a big chunk of it is like, this is a voice of authority. This is someone who's actually, you know, mm. worth following or the actual person uh, because you would get an awful lot of that with celebrities. You know, you get parody accounts and people setting up with different usernames and all, all that kind of thing. So the blue tick is really important. Now, Twitter introduced its subscription service, Twitter Blue, um, which I suppose was it started off in the States and in New Zealand. And for something like $7.99 a month, you get your blue tick. You prove, you get, you hand over a phone number to show that, you know, it's, it's a live individual. Um, $7.99 a month, you get your blue tick. There you go. No questions asked. Well, not no questions asked, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Compared to the verification process that you had to go through before, um, it is effectively no questions asked. Now, for a brief window, Twitter um, said, if you can verify your identity or verify that you're a person of interest or someone that, you know, um, uh, people would listen to or someone whose identity you need to protect it, just contact us and we'll sort it out, right? Then it became this whole, oh, anyone can have a blue tick, just pay for it. And it has just completely devalued the idea of a blue tick mm. because you know you could be anybody. You could be you know a propagandist. You could be just an idiot with some spare cash. You know maybe you are a, an actual you know outlet. But who's to say? Because you know the whole idea is is just being completely devalued. And it's not like this is a huge money maker. I mean, there's something like four hundred thousand. Uh, verified accounts out there, what they call legacy accounts. So accounts that were out there already that people weren't paying for their tick. And there's like 300,000 people actually subscribed uh, through Twitter Blue. 
So you've got basically a million blue ticks floating around. Uh, and if you're like uber really important, like a, a newspaper or, you know, a broadcaster or anything like that, you got bumped up, up to a gold tick to show that you were, you know, an impartial voice. Um, and of course, Twitter had the right to remove things like this or, or you know, flag things as being state sponsored or, you know, whatever they feel mm. uh, they think is, you know, uh, questionable, right? Uh, to the extent that they um, recently tagged NPR, National Public Radio in the States, as being uh, state supported, right? <sighs> it receives 1% of its money from the United States. One thing to about which it. Yeah. it begs the question, given the hundreds of millions of dollars that Tesla has received in subsidies, does that make it a state company? <laughs> oh my goodness. And I can see the arguments going round and round and you said and he said and I've got a blue tick and I've got a gold tick and I've got a legacy blue tick and I've got the le- latest blue tick and da da da. Listen, thank well, you. You know, the New York Times did the right thing. They said, we ain't paying for no blue tick. And that's the way to do it. And if the New York Times ain't playing for blue tick, neither am I. Good way. (laughs) Thank you for making, thank you for making all of that crystal clear. Uh, (laughs) Just in case anyone is worried, that was sarcasm. Right. Let's move on to something that is almost as hot as AI is CT. I love this story. You told me this and do you know what it reminded me of straight away? What? Do you remember Total Recall? Yeah. Oh, yes. And that iconic scene. This this scene actually won an Oscar for special effects, where everybody walks through the giant scanner, and you can see through there, through to their skeleton. And if there was something contentious, you know, there was a red dot started, you know, radiating. Mm. It's like that guy's got a weapon, and and we're there, Dusty. Well, with all of the travel that is going on uh, this weekend and as we get into the summer season and so on and so forth, you'll be happy to hear that um, CT is becoming a thing in airports across the UK and Ireland. And essentially, is we've all heard of a CT scan when you go to a hospital and what it is, it's an X-ray that uh, whizzes around you and blah, 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 takes a, and, and it's able to take amazing pictures of what's inside something. All right. Yeah. It's, it's segments. It yeah. takes pictures and segments. And in this particular case, what it is taking pictures of is your luggage. And because the pictures are so good, it means that you don't have to be restricted to the 100 millimeter stupid rule for liquids. Draws me mad. Uh, and you'd be able to bring up to two litres uh, of liquid through in, in your bag. Why you'd want to do that? I suppose you're a bottle or two of wine, I suppose. Um, uh, or you keep your electronics in your bag and your phone and your laptop and all that kind of stuff. And because of that, do you know how, how much this is going to affect the security queues at airports? Go on. Cut them in half, half the wow. time. All right, because the delays at the and we've all been to the airport, and there's always that one person in front who goes, "Oh, oh, you want me to take the belt off as well? Or what mm. about the shoe? Oh, hang yeah. on, my laptop's in me bag, and you just want it." <laughs> it's a, it's just new them. to you. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you know, a, so that kind of a, so um, and so the storage on the week anyway is that London City Airport have uh, installed these CT scanners in the UK, and they hope to have 
all airports throughout the UK with them installed by summer of next year. So it'll be rolled out here in Ireland. It's already in place in Shannon and a Mm -hmm. massive uh, success. And they're running trials of it in Dublin and Cork and hopefully uh, they will get it up and running as well. Well, I think as a ban, it very much served its purpose. It was a product of its time. Yeah, Um, there you go. It was a product of its time, I suppose. Yeah, And its time was 20 years ago. Yeah, well... Let's not think back to those days and what started it all off. But anyways, that's that's a little bit of good news. Um, Bad news. Uh, Well, good and bad news from space. From space. From space, because I like good and bad news from space. The bad news, of course, is uh, Richard Branson's company, Virgin Orbit, uh, has gone into administration and may well Mm. be uh, wrapping up. Uh, You may remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, they had their Start Me Up operation where they were taking one of Richard Branson's 747s, iconic Mm. 747s, and attaching essentially a rocket to it um, to go up into space. And the 747 Mm. would climb up to whatever, 35, 40,000 feet. Then they let the rocket go and it would go off up into orbit but there was a malfunction and you know this whole thing and the press and the run up to it and the whole event and calling this start me up ended up more like a, a, a wrap me up event unfortunately yeah, because and, it just went, like last, it went wrong last week only it was like they let go of 85 yeah. percent of their workforce yeah. sad and, and very sad very sad and sad for the the private space exploration sector as a whole um, Richard Branson, a fascinating man. If you were to think of business in the 80s, I mean, Richard Branson was was there. Like he was a superstar entrepreneur. Yeah. And one thing he is he has always had has been a sense of timing. He he has known when it is a good time to get into a market, but also when he has reached his limitations within it. And when to get out. And when to get out. And I think he he's recognized it in this case and said, okay, look, mm. um, I'm I've put in as much as I'm willing to put in. This thing didn't work. Um and But you, you see, know. that's what I don't want people to remember it for and go, Oh yeah, it was a disaster, all right, because they had such a pomp and circumstance around the first UK launch uh, into space and it was a disaster because it didn't work. However, yeah. it did work three or maybe four times when they did these launches in the States. Yeah. And that's why they were so confident putting so much uh, uh, flair behind it. So anyway, unfortunately, he's gone. Also in space news, good news from space. Uh, and that is uh, calls between Earth and the Moon uh, will be very feasible soon because Lockheed Martin are considering building a Moon to Earth satellite communications network. Who's going to be on the Moon to talk to? This is the whole thing. This is what I love about it. All right, because because uh, NASA and uh, and uh, 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 Elon Musk company SpaceX are flying to the moon. They're going to put people on the moon, and it's not yeah. just a case of oh, we're going to you know drive around in golf buggies for the crack. All right, they're actually going to go to the moon, and the next step is to actually put some kind of a permanent base on the moon. Hmm. And, I, and I'm pausing because I'm going why. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at do you the know top- what, John? I love this idea because yes, I all love I'm the seeing idea. at the moment is rocks and dust and total desolation, and in the middle of it, a phone box. 
I just love it. I want that in our lives. With the Lockheed Martin logo on it, yeah. But yeah. I, I love the fact that as well, I mean, 2024, 2025, we're all talking, there's a lot of talk about going to the moon and man will stand on the moon once again. But mm. Lockheed Martin are thinking about lunar infrastructure. All right. And they're going to put yeah. a couple of satellites spinning around the moon, which will help the people on the surface. And then they will also be permanently connected uh, with with Earth. And just putting that infrastructure in place, I just think it's kind of like, I mean, think back to just the fact that we're at this stage now. When you're putting mm. in infrastructure on something that's not Earth, that's yeah. a huge step forward. So uh, that's And oddly enough, uh, related to our interview this week. But anyway, more about that in a few moments time. Last bit of news for you this week is the uh, Kobo Ellipsa 2E. It's a new uh, e-ink tablet. Now, you get a lot more excited about e-readers than I do. Well, I love e-readers for a start. You do? Yeah. Like I got my, I don't know, second generation Kindle secondhand for 50 euro and it does exactly everything I wanted to, which is not a lot. There you go. Yeah. You read books on it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. However, you like things that are much more sophisticated than that. Yeah, I really like, I was waiting for the Kindle. In fact, actually, let me go back even further. I was looking at the Remarkable 2 because I just mm. kind of thought, okay, if we can have an e-reader like that where you can read books, wouldn't it be great if you had an e-writer, if you like? Okay. The same, so the what, what did the Remarkable 2 actually do? You were able to write on it with a pen and it was like having a notebook, except it was just this one single thing that you had. You didn't have to walk around with 17 different notebooks or one big notebook or whatever. All right. So this was just a notebook. It wasn't an e-reader. I don't think the Remarkable 2 is an e-reader, actually. I think right. you can do some e-reading, but I don't think it is. It's it's mainly so it's, it's basically making a notebook. notes. It's basically a notebook, all right? You can make notes. Right. And the reason why uh, it didn't really take off is because, A, it was expensive mm-hmm. uh, and still is the most expensive option. And then, B, you had to buy a subscription if you wanted to sync go- documents between your Remarkable 2 and Google Drive or whatever happened to be Dropbox or whatever. Okay, but you could you could link it to third parties. You could do if you paid the subscription. Yeah. So if you're paying like four or 500 quid for this thing and then you have to pay another 80 quid a year just to Oof. keep your... It's like, you know. Uh. Well, so Kindle came along at uh, Christmas and they launched the Kindle Scribe and we got one in the house hmm. to huge uh, applause and is used every single day uh, in multiple ways, not by me, by the less tech savvy person who lives here. <laughs> <laughs> No names being mentioned. <laughs> Whenever. It's an absolute hit, to say the very least, all right? Uh, and it is. It's a fantastic piece of kit. And what the Kindle Scribe is, you can make notes on it and you can write on it, but you can also uh, read books on it. So that's 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 right. a plus. So it kind of does everything, all right? Then uh, Kobo have come out now and they've taken things one step further where they've brought out their own e-ink tablet that can do something the Kindle can't, and that is... You can make notes on an actual book. You can underline words, you can circle words, make little notes in the margin and stuff like that. You can't do that with the Kindle Scribe. Um, Uh. Also, uh, which is nice because it's in around the same price, the pen that comes as standard also includes an eraser, uh, which is something that you have to buy as a bit of an added extra with uh, with the Kindle Scribe. That sounds hilarious. 
So I'm kind of thinking, yeah, great, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the Kindle Sky because we're a bit of an Amazon house anyway. So fair enough. Speaking of Amazon, actually, final story: mm. um, the uh, UK company uh, started in 2005 called Book Depository. Um, very often uh, treated as a third-party seller in on Amazon.co.uk, and notably cheaper. Um, I always found when I went on to look for a book on Amazon, I go to the thirty par- third party sellers and straight away Book Depository was the cheapest of them and had excellent service. Uh, unfortunately, being closed down by Amazon, um, yeah, the parent company decided that the, this whole books thing, uh, not as good as AWS when it comes to uh, delivering the big books. So they are closing it Oh, that's pity. Um, as, as much of a lover as I am of digital books and the Kindle and the likes, I do miss going into a bookstore and yeah. wanting... No, I, I still do. I still go into Easton's and they still have tons of books and stuff like that, but it's just kind of not the same. Yeah. Um, do you know what? Do you know what? Uh, it, it has been a casualty of the digital era. You might remember around the turn of the century not even the turn of the decade, the turn of the century, mm-hmm. coffee and books was a thing. You went into a bookshop, there was a coffee section as well. Yeah. Um, similarly, like uh, near me, there was a, a bookshop that until COVID-ish had a, had a cafe part, which was lovely. Um, but uh, it, cl- it closed down uh, when when COVID hit, it just never. never there was another big one in uh, in Blanchestown there that you say it, it it is, and yes, it would be that you'd you'd buy your book and you go up and you have a coffee, and they'd have the nice yeah. little yeah. Barnes and Nobles did it in, in in the states as well, like you know, and it was it was a thing. So I do, I do kind of miss that, and I think I miss it more for like reference books. I used to love buying music books, and they'd be more mm-hmm. like kind of you know whatever if you want to say the 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 top 1,000 albums you must listen to before you die, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I love those kind of books and I still do. Um, but for, you know, kind of like fiction or for biographies and stuff like that, like just proper books as you read front to back. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think the digital readers are, are, are great. Anyway. Anywho. Anyhow, such as life. We miss it, but yeah. I also like well, the fact. I, mean, I also I, like I the fact that it. I can go. Oh, that book sounds great. I want to buy it. Boom. Okay, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I miss I miss books and coffee, and I miss, I will miss book depository. Excellent. Now, listen, there we go. Let's leave it for now. That is our news. We have plenty more for you, of course, online at our website at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Radio from TechCentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. When it comes to networks, proponents of AI say the technology is for everyone, but big organizations are waiting on a business case to make a potentially expensive move from people running their existing infrastructure to AI taking over. Jan Vandelaar is a director at networking specialist Juniper, and he took some time out from an event held by Agile Networks earlier this year to give his perspective to Niall Kitson. Jan, in talking earlier, we looked at 2007 as kind of a, a tipping point for technology. And, you know, we know pretty much around then the smartphone was really gaining traction. Um, was 2007 really that important? 
Uh, yes, for sure. 2007 was really this important in this way is that, you know, what we've seen is the adoption rate of technology by human beings is very linear. And then if we see the exponential growth on complexity of technology, that is very exponential. So we really need to have technology helping people to absorb the technology uh, to guide them into the future. So you mentioned there about the, uh, I guess, we're living in an exponential era when it comes to technology. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so you see, we're, we're always, we, there is always a need for uh, higher demand on, on bandwidth, higher demand of speed. And this higher demand on speed is ignited by, you know, uh, being faster to market. So digitization is key. Digitization of markets, digitization of, of healthcare, digitization of retail. All these things uh, are key to be competitive differentiating uh, amongst companies. So therefore, you need to introduce new technologies and those new technologies uh, demand a different uh, uh, adoption rate as well and um, it, it, it adds more complexity to IT teams and to uh, introduce this complexity to introduce this change it's very hard for people to keep up to date with technology and execute on these technologies so we need to find other ways to absorb technology and integrate technologies and that's why uh, we think that AI is a, is a huge plus point uh, to enable uh, businesses to grow for the future. That point of absorbing new technology into teams kind of speaks to a shift in mentality that teams have to have to go from the sort of code-based mentality to thinking more about, okay, here's the problem. What kind of solution do we want as to necessarily getting down and executing on it? Oh, you're totally right. You're totally right. Uh, Imagine today. Uh, and it reveals more about my age than anything else but when is the last time you used a DOS prompt on your Windows machine yeah? so if you look into today uh, DOS is becoming more obsolete everything is graphical driven it's more intuitive and that's exactly where we're going with our uh, with, with, with networking um, it is more like the intent that is more important than getting to the intent uh, the era of you know uh, doing CLI commands and so on is, is becoming more and more obsolete, we're going to use CLI commands when there is really, really a deep, deep rooted uh, uh, problem um, uh, in corner cases, like we do today with Windows or with Linux, we go back to the uh, to the prompt uh, and therefore, when we want to really go with intent-based networking we want to understand what's the intent articulate that intent in a couple of clicks onto the graphical interface and everything else uh, should be uh, published uh, on the back end And do you find the IT team have difficulty in adapting to this new uh, this new paradigm, or is it very much a case of okay, here's just another solution? Um, that's an interesting question because there are companies that are more uh, risk averse to this, and sometimes it's about the fear of letting go. Uh, there are different stages uh, of companies. There are companies that really embrace this technology and move forward, but there are still companies that find it hard. And this is my own experience. But once they tried it they're liking it it's a little bit that that specific taste of cheese maybe that you were afraid of but once you taste it it's like hmm you know this is really something that I like and that's the same thing with uh, uh, with the new intent based networking and, and the new AI it's about that letting go and trust on technology 
And of course, when we talk about new AI, we're talking also about sort of the building blocks of it, which comes down to comes down to data. That is so true. So, so uh, AI uh, having good data. Um, uh, leads to having good AI. It's the same like uh, making wine. You know, if you want to make great wine, you need to come with great grapes or fine dining. You know, fine dining comes with good and great ingredients. So, with uh, if you look into the platform that we're offering, it's it is all about the data and how we gather the data. That's why we have written everything from scratch. We 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 started the company. Uh, from scratch with a clean sheet of paper and it was all about data yeah and if we have the good data then um, this will result into to great outcomes and you know a, a lot of companies they say they do AI but if you build an AI driven company it is a totally different setup if you see a normal company you have a Gantt chart where you say hey you know I need to create a PCB I need to create the software, test it, and I have a product. Where with AI, it's it's totally different. Where I need to get a data mining team, I need to get a data training team, I need to have a data, uh, um, you know, the, the data sciences that that can create the right algorithms. And then once you understand that uh, I have a hundred percent efficacy of the outcome, then you can release the product. So you see, it's a, it's a different way in going to market than a normal product-based company. And uh, a totally different set of skills as you analyze there as well. Uh, totally, uh, totally different set of skills. Um, and this is why what, what we do, for example, if you take the traditional um, support cases, yeah, you open a support ticket and then people try to fix that support ticket. The way we address this is that when a customer opens a support ticket with us, we're going to analyze, of course we will help the customer, but we're going to analyze what could we have done to avoid the customer open a support ticket with us. Yeah. So this is like, um, was this a configuration issue? Was this a documentation issue? Was this uh, maybe a bug? Was this maybe something we didn't anticipate in a configuration? Then it goes to um, the uh, data mining team. And the data mining team is then going to look in to, did we have the right data to actually come to a conclusion that we could proactively inform a customer, hey, this is what is wrong. Yeah, if the data mining team doesn't find it, it goes then to the, uh, when we don't have the data, then it goes to the <clears throat> firmware team, and the firmware team is then going to look into how can we now build components into the firmware that we could aggregate the data from the system, and then, you know, uh, 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 from there on, it goes to the data programming guys and they then find the right algorithm that we can uh, anticipate to the problem and you know then we need to see hey we get the right data it goes back to the data training team that the results are really true that the efficacy is uh, close to 100 percent that we can really rely on the ai engine for feedback which creates a, another problem in developing a, a workflow that will make sure the data is gathered but also feeds back into that customer service system. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, and, and that's why we have an agile development uh, uh, or uh, sequence. Um, you know, like a normal Gantt chart where you say, hey, I'm going to release every two weeks or every quarter or every month this X, Y, or Z. That is a little bit different because you sometimes you go into the unknown and you need to see um, whatever we're going to produce that it is really truly helpful and and that it's, that it's not a, a false positive or a fluke. Yeah. And identifying things that are helpful, I suppose, is a, a challenge in and of itself. 
I don't, yeah, that is a challenge uh, in and of itself, that is true, but therefore we rely sometimes on our customers as well, because our customers, they come back to us and it's like, hmm, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could have this, or wouldn't it be nice if we could have this, and that's why, you know, we see ourselves as a company, we are an extension of the customer's team, where we understand from the customer, hey, uh, would this make sense, or when we look at the customer where we see, hey, you know, uh, this was a problem that is reoccurring. So, for example, we just recently announced uh, a feature called Port Stuck. Yeah. How did we get to this? It's like we have a customer where they have a lot of IoT devices and not always the drivers of these IoT devices are that complex or intelligent and sometimes it just gets stuck. And when would you find out that an HVAC uh, IoT device is stuck or, uh, or a sensor or something is that when people start to complain. And when people start to complain is way too late. So we thought, hey, you know what? Our AI engine reads all the ports in an organization why can't we not come up with an algorithm that we can detect if the port is stuck? And this helped that customer tremendously. And when we're talking about ports, of course, we're talking about individual devices. So I imagine you've got a lot of companies, a lot of enterprises finding out exactly how many endpoints they, they have. Uh, true, true. That, that, is, that is the other thing, you know, uh, understanding how many endpoints they have, uh, that is one thing. But also, how are these endpoints operating? For example, we had a customer... Uh, here, not uh, not in the. I thought it was in the UK. Uh, in in uh, yeah, in the UK, uh, we had a customer where we introduced our technology, and um, uh, we saw there was a bad cable. Yeah, and the customer himself, they were asking, "Huh, what is connected to this bad cable?" Because we don't know, and then we found out it was their safe where they put their money, and they didn't realize that the safe was offline. They didn't know, and we detected it. Yeah, so that is the value right there, you know. So the the challenge we are having is um, out of all these ports that you have, what is good, what is bad, uh, because it doesn't mean that the port is up, that the device is having a good service. Yeah, because I, I've been uh, I've been with companies where I ask them, what do you do when something is wrong? Oh, we open a support ticket. We first check uh, if all the devices are up. When all the devices are up, it goes to the next level. How long would that sometimes take? Yeah, we see sometimes when I ask the customer, sometimes it takes two weeks, three weeks to resolve an issue. That is way too long. That is very unacceptable. Yeah, where thanks to AI, and you have to have the process power in the cloud uh, because doing AI, you need to have a very elastic system because there is so much stuff happening in the background that, um, uh, you know, we need to get that, that horsepower uh, to, to, to calculate all these data that you get in and then come up with, hey, here, here, or here, uh, uh, you have a problem. And it's, it's that mean time to innocence, that mean time to repair, where a lot of value is. And that is where we go to. So where do you see the future of AI as applies to networks? Will it be in the sort of the, the self-healing or really easy to deploy network? Or do you think the trend initially is going to be towards that sort of that help desk, that problem solving area? No, no. For, for me, the future, it's clear what you just said. For me, the future is self-healing. Um, and self-healing, uh, if you take it to the car uh, world today, it's really self-driving. And if you ever tried a self-driving car today, 
I did it myself once. I had my hands around the steering wheel because I wanted to anticipate to the car if something is wrong or not wrong or, or going well. Um, it's the same thing with networking. We want to be in control uh, because we want to understand what is going on. But it's just a matter of time when people get really comfortable with, hey, this is going well, this is good, we trust it. It is that, uh, that inertia that we need to get across and uh, give it a couple of uh, more years, maybe five to ten years, and, and we, will, we will let go more and more. And uh, on our side, it, it, that's what we do. We, we have self-healing and self-driven networking. That's what we support today. Self-healing, for example, if you're taking wireless, getting a wireless orchestrated is not an easy thing to do. And that's why on the wireless, people are letting more go into trusting a system into optimizing the RF spectrum. And then we have the self-driven. This is like your lane assist in your car. You know, the lane assist will warn you, hey, you're going off track and it will bleep here, left or right. That's exactly what we do with self-driven. We have a dashboard where it actually says, these are the action items you need to take place or you need to take care of right now um, uh, or otherwise you're gonna run into issues. That's the self-driven part. And that was Jan Vandelaar from Juniper. If you'd like to know more about the role of AI in networking, do check out the link in our show notes. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show for this Easter weekend. We do have more stories online for you, of course, which we didn't have time for in the podcast, including Google's London employees protesting recent layoffs, what generative AI has to do with social engineering attacks, and the latest tech beat poll on security is opened for entries with an Apple Watch for one lucky respondent. You'll find all of that on our website at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RT Radio 1 Extra. And of course, to get new episodes automatically, just click follow on your podcast player right now. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Nile Kitson, happy Easter. Talk soon. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.